From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And education policy playing out in district upon district upon district, the reopening of schools or the not reopening of schools. This is what the state wanted. The state wanted this decision to be made locally. We are certainly seeing that, and that means that the decisions are literally and figuratively all over the map. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, your analysis piece, uh, your kind of big picture this week focused on the school year getting off to a chaotic start. And you looked uh, in particular at a couple of counties and a couple of districts. But I think really what we're seeing uh, is the state's philosophy of local control being stress tested very much uh, during an emergency pandemic. And that's kind of the way you set things up, but let's get into uh, your piece. And, and, you know, right now, many Idaho schools and districts and charters are back in session in one form or another. And next week, many others will go back in one form or another. But let's get into your findings and, and why this is really, you know, putting our philosophy of, of local control uh, very much to the test. Yeah, I mean, the concept of local control is so you know, hardwired into Idaho political thinking that you know the phrase almost you know, becomes a mantra. You know, we hear it on so many topics, and education is no exception. And we see local control in action in education in a lot of areas. I mean, school boards get a pot of money for teacher salaries, but they're empowered to negotiate with their local teachers and their local unions and come right. up with their own salary schedule. That's not mandated by the state. The state doesn't mandate textbooks or curriculum. So no matter how much, you know, you know, moaning and groaning, we hear about common core and we hear about science standards, those curriculum and, and textbook decisions are always made locally. They're always going to be made locally. That's never going to change. So it's not like local control is a new concept in education. It just, it feels a little bit different when we're in the middle of a public health crisis that, you know, to belabor the obvious point, a virus that does not respect school district lines. I mean, what happens in one school district and how one school district responds to the pandemic can have a very definite effect on community health beyond their borders because employees may not live in within the boundaries of their school district, they may cross into, they may live in another community. Um, you know, students may, you know, you know, go, you know, you know, just, you know they, they may go shopping and they may go to the mall and, and, you know, you know, they, they're not bound to their, their community. So what happens in one school district can very definitely affect other school districts. Oh, that's a really good point. And I think it was Governor Brad Little, I want to say maybe three weeks ago, said, I can think of a couple of intersections in Canyon County where I might see school buses passing through for four different districts or charters. Uh, And so absolutely we have, uh, yeah, the virus doesn't respect uh, these boundaries. But yeah, even within counties, even within public health districts, you've got a split. You may have a school district that's uh, in parts of two counties or parts of two health districts or parts of two communities and, and vice right. I mean, versa. Can, you know, Canyon County is a, an example that I didn't use in my story, but nine school districts. Yeah. You know, you've got your Nampa school district and your Caldwell and Valley View, large districts, but also these very, you know, relatively much smaller rural districts like Notice and Melba and, and on down the list. 
you know, but that's still a community where you have, you know, bus routes and, you know, people living in different communities and commuting to work. I use Ada County as an example because I was really struck by what we are seeing unfold in Ada County. Yeah. Three school districts in, in Ada County. You've got West Ada is going to open on Tuesday and they're going to open online. How long they're going to be online, how, how long it will take for them to go into some sort of a face-to-face -face model remains to be seen. The hope trustees have is that they'll get to face-to-face um, uh, -face learning here in the near future. Boise opened August 17th, completely online, laid out their plan on Thursday to try to get students back into school. Could happen as early as uh, September 21st uh, with at least some kids in the early grades, uh, pre-K through second grade. Contrast that to CUNA, which is in Ada County. It's in the southern, uh, you know, southern part of Ada County. Right. CUNA opened this week, and they opened with a blended model. Half of the kids were showing up on Monday. Half of the kids were showing up on Tuesday. Um, you know, it's you know the design of the blended model, of course, is to try to limit the number of kids in school on a given day. But here was CUNA going with a a hybrid model, despite the recommendations from the Central District Health Department, which has said that all Ada County schools should remain online only for the time being. Oh yeah, and this is including, not you know, this is not new. Central District Health has been publishing these guidelines on Monday afternoons for a month now. Uh, hasn't changed. It it's hasn't been, changed. And they issued recommendation for a month. Yeah, and they issued current new classifications on Monday of this week uh, with updated metrics, and it was still in the red. And the red, you know, you're getting into the issue of consistency versus inconsistency, but the red was intended to align with, and it's important, this is non-binding state guidance going back to that uh, reopening plan that Governor Brad Little and the State Board of Education endorsed I want to say this was in July, um, yep. but you know, red, yellow, and green were intended to mean something, uh, and red was intended to align with again non-binding guidance uh, to have the buildings closed and and school operations take place at a, a remote learning level. But we're not seeing red mean the same thing from district to district, and we're not even seeing anymore the same three classification categories, red, yellow, green. It may be four categories with gray and orange mixed in there, depending on where you live, right? Yeah, it's it's really, it, it's kind of a messy process. And that's uh, the thrust of my analysis piece on Thursday is that this is a, this is a messy process. And it's messy by design, because when Idaho decided when Governor Little and the state board agreed upon the idea of let's really make sure that school districts are, you know, taking charge of this issue and get and empowered to take charge of this issue, unlike what we saw in the spring, you could have predicted yeah. what we're seeing. I mean, 115 school districts and dozens and dozens of charter schools all deciding what to do. Of course, there's going to be inconsistencies. Of, of course, there's going to be, you know, policies that seem contradictory and, you know, decisions that don't seem to line up with the science and with the current case numbers. I mean, you know, I wanted to drill down a little bit on CUNA and, and get some explanation of why are they in hybrid learning when Central District Health is not recommending 
hybrid learning when Central District Health is recommending online only. And the explanation that I got from CUNA was that the decision was made in late July to open with hybrid model on the premise and uh, with the expectation from, health, uh, from Central District Health that case numbers were gonna drop in Ada County in August. They, they are, but slowly. Um, and Central District Health telling CUNA, well, we think we're going to be out of this red category into this yellow category, which would align with hybrid learning. We think that's gonna happen by the end of August. Well, here we are, early September, that hasn't happened. It could happen as early as next week, but it hasn't happened. And CUNA is you know, going forward with the hybrid model because they basically, when they decided on the hybrid model in late July, they said, we're going hybrid, come what may. There was no condition attached to it. We're gonna go hybrid, assuming that CDH relaxes the recommendation and goes with the recommendation that, that you know uh, for hybrid learning. There were no conditions attached to that. I mean, basically, CUNA said, "Well, we're going to go hybrid." I think and they're going hybrid. Yeah, and, and they're within their within their rights to do that. But, right. Yeah. You know, again, it puts them at odds with the the current recommendations from Central District Health, which, as you mentioned, those change weekly. So the situation could change weekly, it's, and could very well change in Boise and West Ada. We could be talking about a very different. Uh, very different plan when we get together for the podcast next week and the week following. It's, you know, we're yeah. going to be following this thing all year. Yeah. I it, mean, and I feel like I want to throw in the plug right now while it's fresh on my mind. Um, we have a map on our website that we're going to be updating, you know, as, as information changes and it will change. Um, a map that shows you what's happening school district by school district, charter by, by charter, who's open, who's hybrid, Who's online only? What are the health um, district recommendations and guidelines in that community? What's the status on masks in school? So we're we're constantly going to be updating that map so that you can see what's happening in your community and compare it with what's happening around you and what's happening around the state. So check that out and keep us posted as you see things and see things change in the community because that's going to be a living document <laughs> through the school year because it's going to change you know day to day community by community it's you know this is going to be a big part of our job between now and uh, and may figuring out you know who's open who's closed who's hybrid you know you know, this is, this is our world right now. Yeah, that's a really cool project, and I'm glad that you plugged that. And that's available for folks uh, at the homepage at www.idahoednews.org. If you get our email newsletter on Friday mornings, uh, if you don't, you can sign up for that. It's free, but if you already get it, uh, look for the, a link to our map in this week's newsletter, which you would have got this morning on September 4th. That was put together by our data analyst and public records specialist, Randy Schrader, who's really the Swiss Army knife of our of our office there. He used to be a longtime administrator and school superintendent. We're lucky enough to have him uh, with us. And he's just been pouring through the data and district websites and board meeting minutes to compile that. And so it's a great resource if you want to find out, okay, what's going on in my community? What's going on in the next district over? How is this changing? That's a really good 
resource. I want to go back yeah, though, and, and it's going to be a living document, as, yeah. as I said. So it'll be continuously you know, if you're listening, and you see something, and you know that something is changing in your community. We're going to have to crowdsource this thing. So, yeah. you know, if you see something that uh, has changed, something that's going to that we need to update, by all means, uh, get in touch with us. Uh, yeah. Drop us an email. Um, you know, get in touch with us over our Facebook page. Um, you know, that's yeah, that's going to be an ongoing project. Yeah, real quick, I want to get back to CUNA's decision about reopening and the justification that they gave and, and just kind of look at the other side of that. You know, on the one hand, I think a lot of parents uh, have been looking for consistency and consistency is something that's been lacking, as everyone knows, during the coronavirus pandemic. And so, it, you know, maybe they were making an effort to remain consistent to their plans so that parents and families and educators and community members would have something to plan for and bank on. They did follow through with that. They are going hybrid. So on the one hand, you know, they did what they said that they were going to do. On the other hand, though, saying that we made this decision in July and, oh my goodness, we were hoping it would be better and we were thinking it maybe would be better and wouldn't it be great if it was better? Well, how many of us in our personal lives have made plans this year thinking it would be better or hoping it would be better or hoping it would be safe and then say, oh gosh, you know, maybe it's not quite time to take that big trip or maybe it's not quite time... You know, maybe I'm not going to be able to go to the sporting events this year or, you know, take, you know, whatever. How many of us have had to put something on the back burner or change our plans at the last minute because of the virus? Or and because how of, many of you have not had to do that? Right. I mean, really. As information is available, you know, great. I, I would have had a very different summer than what I ended up happening based on the plans that I made previously. But I, I changed those. And I think everyone can relate to that. And so it isn't as if the CUNA school board had its meeting in July and there was no other information or no other opportunities uh, to make that change. We saw West Ada, uh, the state's largest school district, um, make tweaks and changes to its own plans multiple times. And so on the one hand, give them credit for being consistent, putting out a signal in July and staying with it. But if it doesn't go well, I think there will be a lot of opportunities to second guess what the heck are you doing? Uh, well, and so we'll see. Well, and, and let's look too, because this is a really good point. And I think it's a really good line of, of conversation that we should uh, run to ground here a little bit. What you're seeing in some of these other districts, West Ada, Boise, and Nampa, because we have updated stories on our website this week about what yep. their reopening plans are. And a common thread in all three of those plans is it depends on what the new recommendations are from the local health district. Yeah. District Health in the case of West Ada and, and Boise, uh, Southwest District Health in the case of Nampa. And all three of these districts, the three largest districts in the state, are all saying, we're going to adjust our plans based on what Central District Health or Southwest District Health say about the case numbers. So, you know. We've kind of teased at it a little bit. CDH is going to issue its new set of guidelines on Tuesday, right after the Labor Day weekend. That's a that's a big recommendation because Boise's watching it closely. West Ada's watching it closely. Boise's hope of reopening for the early grades uh, on a hybrid model is all predicated on when does CDH or, or does CDH decide to 
uh, move Ada County schools out of the red zone and into the yellow zone. So it's all tied to CDH. And that's, you know, that's really what the plan was all along, though. I mean, to consult with the health districts. Well, yes. And to kind of defer to their, you know, their their science and their expertise. Use the word expertise. The governor and the state board was, okay, school districts, you make this decision. But we do expect the health districts to have an advisory role. And, you know, we're just coming out of the special session last week where you had legislators who clearly wanted to take a run at the health districts. We've, we've heard them talking about this and it didn't come up in the special session, but that's still an issue that we're, we're likely to see surface in January. And it's based on this notion that the health districts are dictating whether schools are open or closed. Well, that, that may have been, you know, the health districts did have veto authority back in the spring and we did see that in action. But what we're seeing right now in the fall is pretty much what, you know, the state expected and hoped for, you know, health districts are providing the science, they're providing the expertise, they're providing some guidance, and, you know, the school districts are taking that into account as they should. I mean, it, it, it feels like the system in that sense is working as you would want it to work. Yeah, I went to a press conference at the state house on Thursday, just the day before we're recording this podcast, and it was with Governor Brad Little, and I asked him about the role of public health districts and about school closure authority, knowing that there is this wide gulf. You know, you've got legislators such as Senator Stephen Thane, Republican, I want to say, from Emmett. Emmett. Uh, Relative Emmett resident, just like the governor. Just like the governor, who may well be in line uh, to be up considered to be Senate Education Chair. Uh, we'll know yeah. that later. He's Vice Chair of Senate Education Committee right now. He went on the record during a public meeting, uh, must have been three, four weeks ago, saying that um, public health districts and setting policies based on expertise is elitist, and that he's worried about an elitist approach and how that could lead to totalitarianism when you talk about public health. Uh, But I asked Governor Little about it on Thursday, totally different tone uh, from Governor Little, who's also a Republican from Emmett. Uh, who said, I don't think right now is the time to turn over the apple cart because we've got a crisis on our hands. Governor Little said that he'd been reviewing Idaho's history with public health districts, which goes back 50 years. He's been reviewing the state's public health response, which goes back 100 years to 1918, uh, which is a significant date. There was also a uh, pandemic uh, 1918, 1919 mm-hmm. time, 1918-1919 time frame. Governor Little said, I welcome the debate during the legislative session. There's always opportunities to improve our existing systems. But he said two things that really struck me. He said we need a place to house that expertise and that the, he thinks that these were put in place for pretty good reason and that they've done their job for 50 years. That doesn't mean there can't be opportunities for improvement. But here's a guy who talked about having a home for that expertise and not being in a rush uh, to change this. And that was just one of a couple areas where the governor had a little bit different perspective maybe than what we heard during that special session last week. No, and I thought that was that was really telling as I listened on, on Thursday. I was struck by that as well, because, you know, you know, it, it feels like you've got legislators whose, whose minds are made up that there's something inherently wrong with, you know, 
the structure of having the health districts. And, you know, I'm not going to unqualified defend everything that we're seeing out of the health districts because, you know, the health district boards are made up of mostly elected officials, mostly county commissioners. And you've had some straight up, you know, coronavirus doubters, um, you know, using the their positions on these health district boards to spread misinformation about yeah. the pandemic. I mean, there's, you know, there's no nice way to put it. You've got people who are, you know, who are telling lies about the, the pandemic and are using their position of power to spread those lies. You know, you had Central District Health last night, Thursday night, have a meeting in which effectively the health district board said a handful of bars in Boise could reopen, but not until we're in a place where schools can reopen in a hybrid model. So here we are in 2020, and the, the political compromise of the year is, well, we'll open bars, but not until we can open schools. I mean, that's where we are. That's that's weird. I never... So I'm not going to say that the health districts are flawless, just like the governor said. There, right. there are ways that maybe it can be improved. But you do have folks on these health districts, in these health districts, you have you know public health specialists, you have experts, you have staff, who are trained in this stuff, who know this stuff, you know, who are, you know, helping the boards work their way through these issues. So there's a there's a place for the health districts. And I thought it was interesting that Governor Little came out strongly and said, you know, we need we need that expertise. Yeah. And, and I mean, Governor Little's rep- reputation, among several things, is he's a, a student of policy that he can really he, he knows the history and he knows the state. and He's capable and interested in sinking his teeth uh, into these things and really digesting it. Uh, I tell you, though, there was one other thing from Governor Little's press conference that caught my eye. And I noticed you noticed it, too. But it had to do with how he referred to the emergency orders, which were another huge scapegoat during that special legislative session. You had a lot of opposition from the public and those large crowds uh, to the emergency orders. Uh, It came up in many of the committee hearings. Um, You had a House resolution intended to undo the emergency order just right on the spot, walk away from it cold. The Senate refused to take that up, but then the Senate passed its own resolution which isn't binding, but said we're going to address a number of topics in 2021, uh, among them the the authority of public health districts and the emergency order. And we heard uh, retiring Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill saying we need to get rid of this. We don't want it on the books. And the governor has given me permission to say that, that he wants to work to get rid of it. That's what we heard last week during the legislative session. What I heard yesterday uh, Thursday, when he was asked about it, um, reporters asked Governor Little about the emergency order, and he said, yeah, the reason we have an emergency order is because there's an emergency out there. The conditions are such that we have an emergency, and he said, as a matter of fact, in all 50 states that exist right now, there is some form of emergency order in place because there's an emergency. The, right. and that was pretty clear. And I, and I think, and I was struck last week, too, about how much misunderstanding and confusion there is surrounding this emergency declaration. That's not the reason why people have to wear masks at all. Right. I mean, you know, those decisions are being made locally. They're being made by cities. They're being made by health districts. You know, 
the emergency declaration from the governor is not a mask mandate. And the governor has painfully said on repeated occasions he doesn't want a statewide mask mandate. And that's, you know, you know he's gotten backlash over that. So that emergency declaration doesn't do that. It has no uh, binding language regarding schools opening or closing. It, you know, it, it really does not do a lot of things that people thought it would do. And you, know, you mentioned Stephen Thane before, when the Senate's version of the emergency declaration resolution came to the floor, he basically said, you know, I came here thinking, yeah, we, we need to get rid of this designation, but he said that he'd come to realize that you know it wasn't doing all of the things that he may have thought that it was doing, and that you know maybe it's not you know you know he you know his thinking about the emergency declaration evolved. I mean you know, but you're right. It became the scapegoat for everything that's wrong. Oh yeah, everything that's frustrating, everything that's frightening about this situation. It's not a deadly virus that's the problem. It's the state why emergency order is how people framed it. And that just didn't make any sense. So, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. You know, the governor did not make any breaking news on Thursday with, with his news conference. And, you know, we're still in stage four on the reopening plan and feels like we've been in stage four since, you know, you know, for years now, but it's been about two months, which yeah. I guess is years now in 2020. But he did make news in the sense that he, he did kind of, position himself for the 2021 session on a couple of issues that uh, we're going to hear a lot of discussion about when when legislators do come back for real and when uh, legislators can run whatever on their whatever bills they want to do yeah i mean he said that we're going to continue using the governor's words he said he would continue uh, to use the science and the data uh, to guide the state's Response And so that's kind of where he left it. But talking about the role of public health districts and the emergency order in very, very different terms than what we heard during the legislative session. But it just was kind of an interesting way for me to think about um, how unresolved all these issues are and just how much is going to take place during that 2021 legislative session, which they're going to be convening in about what four months. I mean, it's just around the corner. Uh, it'll be the second full week of January, I want to say. Yeah, it's going to be a wild session. And, you know, if anything we saw from the special session is an indication it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a busy, regular legislative session. It's going to be contentious. Um, you know, you know, some of the, the protests that we saw last week uh, would not surprise me if we saw more of that in January, because we're going to be right back talking about some of these very emotional, very visceral issues, uh, you know, no, it, it's going to be wild. Yeah, and if we have time uh, for one more topic, also within the prism of looking ahead to 2021, yeah. uh, maybe shifting to budgets a little bit, uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra released her budget request for the 2022 budget year. That's the budget legislators will set when they get to town in January. The proposal is out there. The superintendent, you know, as always, will make her official request before the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee in January or February, but she put it out there now. Um, it, this is sort of just the budget time frame. The state department directors and agency heads submit their requests on or about September 1st every year to get the budget process rolling. And then it really picks up when the legislative session begins. The superintendent's budget proposal was 
pretty modest, and we're so far out from the legislative session that there's probably not a lot of news value in going through the specific dollar amounts because we know that a lot will change between now and January, and this budget is not that herself. But, you know. Yeah, the budget is not likely to get adopted as it is written on this you know, spreadsheet that I got on the email the other day. And the superintendent did say we might even be making some changes in October, but it points to a couple of big decisions that the legislature will have on its mind, you know, come the first of the year. And that's, you got to keep in mind, we're coming, we're in a year right now where there's 5% budget holdbacks to the current budget. And that had to do with anticipating revenue shortfalls because of disruptions to our economy. There was there was a stay-home order and businesses were closed in the spring, and so state officials are anticipating a decrease in revenue uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but we're going to have to make some decisions about, you know, the holdbacks right now only apply to the current budget year. What are our revenues going to look like in January? And then the big proposal from the superintendent's budget was she would like to spend money to unfreeze teacher pay. That was one of the areas, one of the strategies that the governor used to save money with the holdbacks from the current budget year was to basically freeze teacher pay, freeze movement up this career ladder salary allocation system. Uh, Superintendent Ybarra's proposal is to spend money to unfreeze that uh, so teachers could move again uh, and get increased pay as they move uh, from one cell or one rung on the ladder up to the next one. And that's going to be, uh, the budget discussion will be a, another big debate come next year at the state house. I anticipate, what do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I think that, you know, and, and it's going to be a, a tough budget. Yeah. To that. I think we know that, you know, money's going to be tight. I mean, we're, we're already going through the 5% holdback this year and we're going to kind of wait and see what the, with the tax collections, what the revenue picture looks like, knowing that heading into 2021, that's when you're going to start to see the impact of the job losses from earlier this year. You're right. going to see the impact on those income tax numbers as they start to come in in early 2021. And I think legislators are going to be very nervous about getting too far out ahead of revenues, knowing that, uh, you know, there could be, you know, a, a big shock, you know, it should be a shock because we can see it coming, but there's going to be, you know, and there could be a very significant reduction in what comes in uh, on the income tax side. So it's going to be tight budget year to begin with. I mean, legislators have been supportive of the idea of teacher pay raises. I mean, they've supported the, the career ladder for five years with, uh, with almost unanimous support you know, from both parties. But now you're in a very tight budget year, so it's going to be a little bit more difficult to get get funding. And you know, politics is politics, and you know this is going to be Sherry Abar's first legislative session after that lawsuit, where she sued the legislature and the state board of education, but sued the legislature over the shift of IT and data management positions out of her department and over to the state board. Took that case to the state supreme court in the middle of a pandemic filed paperwork with the Supreme Court that, you know, really called out legislators individually and really suggested that legislators have this agenda to neuter her office, to make her office into an appointed position or to systematically 
take positions and take funding and take powers away from the state superintendent. Lawmakers aren't going to forget that. No. And, you know, this is a state superintendent, as we've well documented over the, the past six years, who has struggled to get traction at the state house as it is. And now she's going to come back to some of the same people that she called out by name in this lawsuit. And she's going to be asking for, you know, you know, you know, what was it, about $21 million. And it was yeah. the figure that we attached to it to, right. to unbrace the career ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here to tell you, I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I'm, I would be very surprised if it does happen. And you know, you know, if you're a teacher listening to this and listening to the, you know, to a Bard's budget request, you know, I wish I could be more optimistic for you, but I, I will be, would be very surprised to see that unfold in 2021. So don't spend that pay raise yet. I don't think it's, uh, it doesn't feel like it's in the cards. It, it, it's, it's interesting, but you're absolutely right to point out the backdrop of this lawsuit and how significant that is. And to not overlook that, the superintendent sued, you know, two groups that she works closest with uh, in implementing and overseeing education policy, as you mentioned, the legislature and also the State Board of Education. And really, through her attorney and those filings, basically accused them of not doing their jobs. Uh, it was a pretty serious suit. And she felt like she wanted to protect her funding and personnel in office. Um, but she escalated it big time. And she sued the people she needs to work with the closest. And 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 as kind of happens when these things get in the legal system, some strong claims were made suggesting that People weren't doing their jobs, and, and right. they're likely to remember that. <laughs> they, they, they will definitely remember that. I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, you hear the term "friendly lawsuit" bandied about sometimes, and and there that does come up in in politics, and it does come up in government. And at the heart of this whole dispute, at the heart of this lawsuit, was the question of well, who is the policymaker for education in yeah. the state? Is it the state superintendent who's elected by the people, or is it the state board of education made up largely of gubernatorial appointees? You could have framed a friendly lawsuit about that question. And, you know, as the Supreme Court looked at that lawsuit, I think uh, one of the justices in, in the opinion said, uh, you, know, the, you know, we've talked about this before. This has come up before. This goes back to you know, territorial uh, constitution, goes back to the, the framing of the state constitution. But there were new issues that were raised here. You could have done a friendly lawsuit on that. And focused strictly on the constitutional question, yeah. which, you know, was somewhat right. But this was not a friendly lawsuit. I mean, this was a very adversarial lawsuit. And, you know, when you... And expensive. You know, <laughs> and it wasn't cheap either in the middle of a pandemic. So, yeah, I, I think there's going to be bad blood uh, lingering over that. Yeah. Uh... And I think that's going to affect how Ibarra is received at the state house and especially how is she received and how is she received in the budget committee? Because that lawsuit and those allegations about the legislature was centered around the budget committee was centered around JFAC and members of JFAC. It'll be interesting to see if uh, those ripples of disruption extend to the 2022 election season, uh, which would be the next time that the superintendent should she decide to run again, uh, she's not bound by any kind of term limits or anything like that. Should she decide to run again, I think 2022 
um, would be the year that she's up. It'd be interesting to see if it has effects on through there. But I don't think we've seen the other shoe drop. It's been too recent. Um, so we'll we'll keep an eye on that. No, it's it's fresh in lawmakers' minds. So we'll we'll watch that. So you know, already January looks like it's going to be fun. Yeah. But- We've got plenty to get through between now and then anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, of course. Thanks, everybody, so much for joining us. Those were all the big stories that we wanted to get to this week. Check out the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. There's a lot of other stories there that we weren't able to highlight on this week's show, and we post all our breaking news there as well. Next week's going to be another big one. Uh, We're going to have more information about school reopenings, the state's largest school district, Uh, begins the year next Tuesday. That's West Ada, obviously. Um, So we're going to have a lot that we'll be following. Kevin and I will stay busy. Um, But we always have a lot of fun on this Extra Credit podcast, breaking down the intersection of education policy and education politics. Good news, we will be back next week after Labor Day for another new edition of Extra Credit uh, to talk more about school reopening, Idaho politics, Idaho's response to the coronavirus pandemic, And we'll see um, if there's any new guidelines or if any restrictions are eased and more schools are able to go back in person. We'll keep an eye on all of that and more. But thanks so much for joining us this, this week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.